the Norwegian Medicine Agency's Anya Scheele is one of Europe's leading proponents of new methodologies to harness real-world evidence in the comparative analysis of new medicines. She's the agency's senior statistician and works at the forefront of developing new methodologies to improve the way we understand how therapies actually work in practice. Anya, always a pleasure to see you. How are you doing? Fine, Dwayne, and as always, a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Now, I understand you were in Vienna yesterday presenting to the Austrian agency about your restructuring in Norway. Is that right? Yes, I gave a little presentation because the Norwegian uh, agency is uh, embracing the idea of having a continuous assessment uh, landscape. Uh, a one-stop shop. Yes, and uh, our assessments benefit from having um, the knowledge transferred horizontally across the different departments, which we actually don't have anymore. Right. So no departments. People travel along with the product itself, Right. meaning that um, in particular statisticians, for example, can be involved from the earliest contact. From soup to nuts. So you start at the beginning and you work all the yes, way through. Yes, uh, all the way to pharmacovigilance uh, uh, in the end. And that knowledge transfer is, is um, a lot more efficient now than it used to be in the old days. Now, the Italian agency did that as well. I mean, they were always known as a one-stop shop, as it were, where you mm-hmm. got your HTA and your reimbursement is all part of the same package. Was this the model? How does that, what you're doing, compare? I don't know if it was necessarily the model, but um, historically, the agency always had uh, both of the activities under the same roof, but we used to have a very strict uh, division between the people that were working there. Mm-hmm. And uh, only when they started having uh, a couple of people like me that were going between the two uh, worlds, so regular and uh, reimbursement, that it became more and more obvious that we are double efforting uh, when we do assessments that we do on the one side and, and, and then, then you do it redo again. it on the other side. Yeah, and, and in, in the end, it was very clear that not only is it duplication, but it's also different people have different views and different information. So the information on the regulatory side uh, includes discussions in committees, for example, that never get written on paper. You have to you have to be there and participate in discussions and then you can take up nuances. And they obviously don't go into a reimbursement package. In a reimbursement package, quite often, not even the totality of information that was available to the regulators is provided to the HDA agency. But this tunnel vision has always been one of the criticisms of the current regulatory process. So the idea is that you're going to break that down? Is that what's hoped? Yes. We, um, my activities in the regulatory system, because I'm the chair of the Biostatistic Working Party, I'm also a member now of the Scientific Advice Working Party. We have this parallel scientific advice HDA procedures, which are extremely popular also with the industry. These communications where all parties are in one room right. and, you know, we argue not only uh, regulators D- versus discuss. company. <laughs> oh, well, in the beginning, we actually did argue on occasion, but y- you see that also the regulators discuss with the HDAs and get a better understanding on that perspective and maybe also uh, get a better understanding of the fact that market access is no longer the hurdle. It's, as a matter of fact, moved down the line and, and we don't really like it. But um, we have to adapt to the situation. But that requires that we align ourselves better with the regulators to make it more efficient for us and also for the industry. Now, you mentioned getting everybody in one room having an argument slash discussion about the evidence. Now, you and I initially met under a collaboration uh, on the Adapt Smart project of IMI. Now, adaptive trial designs made sense, but one of the problems was getting everybody to agree and there was a lot of pushback why do you think there was i mean we're all trying to do the same thing now we're all trying Mm. to work together but yet we couldn't seem to get it over the the hump on adaptive pathways why do you think that was i I think it's the it's the complexity of the um, adaptations and changes that are required in the system 
mm-hmm. because we see that it's already difficult to get the regulators and the HDA aligned in in what they demand um, as as evidence. For example, it's there is another group of uh, people that usually gets forgotten, which, which are the payers, and right. they also have to be in line. Uh, payment agreements are difficult. And notoriously, um, they can actually, in the end, be more complex and probably increase the logistic requirements uh, to an extent where they are not attractive anymore. So if we go to the clinic and we tell someone there that uh, we want you to register information on patients, they usually just say, are, are you people crazy? Yeah. We don't have time for this. So if we have to invest in the infrastructure just to collect information to make these entry agreements, for example, work... That isn't attractive for all countries. And for a country like Norway, it's even less attractive. Let me just jump in here. Do you think the managed entry agreements are good in practice, but it's just implementing them is not possible under the current regime? Is that what you... Uh, yeah, we have yeah. problems implementing them because our payer organization is not in favor of them. Uh, the clinicians are not in favor of them. And you can always discuss whether decreasing the transparency even further by having managed entry agreements where nobody knows the details hmm. is helping the system at all. I mean, there are lots of people that say we, we need more transparency and fairer pricing and we can discuss what a fair price is and we will probably, again, not agree on what a fair price is necessarily but the current situation with managed entry agreements is frowned on by many uh, because they feel it's almost doubling the intransparency of the pricing uh, And the system. workload, I suppose. Yeah. So if we don't have a managed entry agreement, and because the managed entry agreement was supposed to be put in place to get around some of the hurdles of early access and early entry with a lack of an, with a lack of an evidence package, that means we're going to have to start looking at more real-world evidence. Now, you've been one of the leaders on how HTAs can use RWE to get a better understanding of value and how a new therapy performs. Can you explain how you're uh, adopting that practice in Norway? I mean, in the in HDA assessments, real-world evidence uh, has always been implemented already. Sure. Everything from asking a clinician to consulting a prescription database is already harnessing real-world evidence. What is lacking is sometimes a, a clear understanding in which areas real-world evidence is brilliant to use and where not. Mm-hmm. And we are very clear that there will always be some part of randomized clinical trial data required. Those have to be produced. They have to be randomized. There are little tricks in in designs to make them more desirable for patients, but we cannot get away from that. And what we definitely cannot do is mix them with real-world evidence. Mm -hmm. Real-world evidence can inform so many aspects of your study design, your outcomes, your patient population. All this can be the natural uh, history of any disease can be found in the historical data. But the moment you want to try to compare patients you treated yesterday with something from five years ago, we end up having problems. We are not willing to accept that. And and that is also uh, for many good reasons uh, why we don't want that. Can you be more specific on what problems you have? Well, the quality of of the historical data is a notorious Mm -hmm. problem. Everybody knows that. There is too much missingness. Uh, There is selection bias. We, We know that the very purpose why you start a registry or a database determines how you will collect your data, what you want to collect and which questions you want to answer. But HDA assessment is not on top of the list of people that start registries as a potential um, outcome of their um, initiative. No, they're usually put in place to provide evidence for a specific medication or something like that. Exactly. And that that instantly tells you that there is a problem here. Uh, You haven't had uh, a focus on collecting what might be relevant 
to the HDA assessment. And that means that sometimes outcomes are not measured in the databases that are required. But usually it's simply that we cannot really assess whether or not this would be comparable to a control arm. But what if you had access to the actual raw hard data in the EHR? You could get right down to the patient level. Now, obviously, the GDPR blows this out of the water. This becomes almost impossible in Europe. But if you could go five years back and see clinical practice before the introduction of a new drug and you had access to everything, you know, tongue depressors, Band-Aids, everything that happened, wouldn't that be possible? I mean, theoretically, Europe should have that level of data. Yeah, theoretically, it should be possible. It should always be possible. And uh, countries like the Scandinavian countries have, Um, a system where you can link lots of these databases together so we could in theory have enormous information package on each individual patient if we were really able to do that. But in practice? In practice it uh, sometimes starts with something as simple as databases in Norway um, have to have a category on um, what kind of marital status or if you're living together with someone. Some have three versions so you can be married, not married or you're living together. Uh, Other databases have five categories. And then you start asking yourself, how am how I going compare to, the to compare these? And, and it, it starts with something that's simple, but think about what you collect, the, ta- the type of data, if that is not comparable. So then, then there's no way you can link these together. The core outcome sets is a miracle word when it comes to, to those thoughts. If we could agree on core outcome sets in every database, then we could link lots of databases together. Mm-hmm. But this is all very difficult to implement retrospect. Right. The data is there as it is. And um, I think the, the methodology and the wish to use real-world data has um, taken the high road past the quality of the actual available data. And that is our main problem. It's not that we are against use of real-world data in many areas. It's that we are against the use of poor real-world data. <laughs> so it's sort of the, the real-world tail ragging the content dog. Yeah, exactly. So let's go back to you know RCTs, randomized clinical trials then, because there is still a, a belief in Europe that these are the gold standard and nothing ever, ever will be better. But you and I know, I mean, obviously, if I'm designing a clinical trial for a new medication, I'm going to, you know, there's this thing called an exclusion and inclusion criteria. And as we like to say, we've never seen a, a 64-year-old obese woman with cardiac disease in a clinical trial. You know? yeah. It's always a 5K runner, mm. you know, yeah, I know. with and 2% body fat, you know. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I mean, we know that the, the RCT is an extremely artificial situation. Mm-hmm. It's one of the, the things that is often criticized from the HDA side. But um, to establish a benefit risk, you need this almost laboratory-like situation mm-hmm. with guinea pigs. That is acceptable. What is not acceptable is that we do not plan in advance to potentially modify studies, for example, being less strict with our inclusion or exclusion criteria, for example, allow more variability and at the same time provide other ways uh, to the company to make these trials still feasible. Mm -hmm. Because the the reason why they are so clinic-like, sterile laboratory is because you need to find the biggest possible effect size somewhere. Mm -hmm. And that means that you want to exclude any variability, even though you know in real world this variability will exist. Mm -hmm. It's an artificial system we are creating. But you only need one study 
in oncology, I would say. I, I actually have never seen two studies as the guidelines normally require in, in yeah. an oncology submission. So you need one study. That one study needs to be designed for the regulators. Everything around can be designed for other stakeholders. And you hear that very seldom that a company comes and says, well, if, if we would do um, a slightly smaller study fitting the regulatory approval and we would do another study that then provides some supportive evidence to this first study, but is designed for, example, the HDAs and focuses on other primary endpoints, but then has some supportive elements for the first. Wouldn't that work? Yes. Yes, actually, it would work. But, but you're not, you don't hear that. Very, very rarely. Yeah. Also, from the patient perspective, you and I have discussed on several occasions there is a lot of pushback from the patients regarding randomized clinical trials. Some patients don't want to end up in a control arm. Mm. How are we dealing with that reality? I think that one of these problems is that patients do not understand the basic principle of the equipoise. The moment we start a clinical trial, and we discuss this quite often with the industry also, they find some preliminary results and immediately declare the placebo arm, and it's not a placebo arm. It's usually a comparative active treatment, which represents the current standard of care. And they want to declare in the trial already that this is unethical, which is, to my opinion, very wrong. You cannot declare something that we do right now, to the best of our knowledge, as being obsolete because you have some preliminary results. Evidence-based, you have to run your trial. When your results are convincing, then the other treatment would become a second choice. Mm -hmm. And then it would be unethical to not offer a new treatment to patients. But as long as the trial is ongoing, the situation is still the same as before. The best available treatment with the best evidence is the one that we are using. The new drug first has to prove that it's really better. And at an interim analysis, and we all know the article that uh, criticized the EMA and the CHMP for having approved all kinds of drugs on phase two trial data, blah, 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 that never really worked out as well as they were promising. But what was interesting about that study, and I think a lot of people misinterpreted the data, if you look at the failure rate from phase two, there was a 17, 18% success rate from the drugs that were allowed in early. It was almost 100% better than the current clinical trial structure. So in many ways, they're doing a pretty good job being quite selective in what they were allowing through. I mean, the filter was working okay. I think it's not necessarily just the filter from the regulators, but it's the industry itself is not proceeding with drugs that are not promising enough. Sure. But the criticism that, for example, the overall survival data were never produced, yeah. uh, or if they were produced, they were not convincing. Mm -hmm. That is an argument for saying, you know, as much as I want to give quick access to, to treatments, to new treatments, they have to prove to be better than what is existing. For a patient, I know there is the moment you get your diagnosis, you are not the same person that you were just five minutes before. Patients shouldn't have to make these decisions, but they should understand that clinical trials are clinical trials. It's not treatment. Uh, there's a lot of idea of that uh, clinical trials is providing uh, access to new, uh, new treatments. That's not true because it could fail. And there are enough trials that fail in the end. So uh, one has to understand that this is a lottery game you are mm -hmm. entering. And if the other choice is the one that you would get under normal circumstances, if this trial hadn't existed, then would you have said no? No, obviously not. Obviously you, would, not. you would have accepted that. And take the uh, oncoimmunotherapies. We see that the results of these are rather disturbing because we see that some patients have initially no effect. They would have probably been better off with the old treatment. 
And as long as we can identify these patients without any doubt, I must always say um, there are certain risks in everything and there's also a risk that you that you would have been the luckiest person on earth on a chemotherapy and you might be the unluckiest person on an immune therapy. The problem with immunotherapy, though, is the response has been so... It's such a bizarre drug. It's never happened before, in mm. an actual response after someone's been taken off the drug, but you actually see that in IO, and there's no biomarker to know who the third of responders are. Yeah, and that only explains to us that we don't really understand how <laughs> these drugs work. And that is, a, that is an indication that our clinical development program was jumping on to proving it does something, at least in some people, which is enough for a positive benefit risk without fully understanding how it works. But that gets to the statistical basis of an RCT. That gets us, we're going full circle now, because the, obviously all you need to do is prove effectiveness in an RCT. Bingo, you've got your p-value off, you're, you're off and running. <laughs> that, that is really no, no longer like this because the p-value, we have this discussion about the p-value and the primary analysis and all this uh, being, you know, if you, if, you, if you just manage that, then you're good to go. No, it really isn't that, that easy anymore. You can come with a brilliant uh, primary endpoint, but if every secondary endpoint and exploratory uh, tells a different story, you will get uh, questions and you might get uh, into trouble. I'd like to pick up on this on this point. <laughs> um, you know, obviously, you're, you're aware we've been doing a lot of work with the Dutch government on CAR-T. We've done a very large analysis in partnership with Vanderbilt University. And what's been fascinating there is that basically a lot of the studies have been wrong. It's really just the subset, the most ill patients, the ones with the highest disease profile, are the only ones getting the CAR-T. Without using real-world evidence, we wouldn't, we wouldn't have figured this out. Two things. We need real-world evidence, so we need uh, observational data once the drug is released into the wild. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, our system doesn't allow for reassessment. And that is a big, big problem we have. We have been discussing this adaptive reimbursement idea also for years and years. It's the same problem. Uh, the same problem with the managed entry agreements. Uh, as well. Exactly. It's, a, it's the same underlying problem. When we discuss reassessment, where I always advocate for that we could save enormous amount of monies if we would just reassess on all kinds of drugs and actually really remove drugs that uh, do not perform as well as they promised at the time of approval. And we would be willing to have a more flexible system, which includes that you pay more if a drug performs much better in the world than expected. Or if, and that is another point, if the clinicians start learning how to use it in the best way, you know, when you know how to treat the side effects, if you know how to um, handle, for example, treatment breaks in a good way, you can increase the effectiveness of a, of a drug enormously. And if the healthcare system can boost it, then, then we should pay more for it because there's no question about it. But we are all still stuck with this. We decided one time on one package and that package is not the package that the HDAs actually would like to have. How do you move that bar, though? Because a lot of your colleagues don't agree with you. How do you change that mindset? Um, well, we tried. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we know that we had the UNETA idea. And uh, I think in the end, we decided to agree to disagree. Disagree. Simply. And, uh, well, it's, it's something um, one has to understand. This is a money question also. Yeah. We cannot agree for, for everybody because even if some of the richer countries would agree on some kind of model that works for them, those prices are still completely unaffordable for, for some of the poorer member states. The concept that the rich ones should pay more so that the poorer ones get also access is a very, very nice idea and we fully agree to it and we would love to do it 
But there again, we are back to transparency. Without transparency, we cannot do that because we don't want to pay more and then the other ones don't get any access either. Yeah, it's the worst of both worlds. Yeah, and since that is a bit the feeling we have that this is a reality, so that we actually already pay more, but we still see that some countries can't afford even drugs that we would probably consider a third choice is for them the only choice. We feel that somewhere this promise is not fulfilled. Right. The system isn't working like this. I would have loved a European system. But I think we started out the wrong way already 10 years ago. And now we see that something good is coming out of the United Project, but not what everybody had hoped for. Right. And the good that's coming out is that... Um, some of us have formed little coalitions. So the regional activities that are ongoing in Europe will make it easier because you can talk to groups of HDAs at least. But it's very clear that we cannot bring everybody into one body. One coalition. Yeah. Now, picking up on that a little bit, Norway is somewhat unique in that you're part of Europe, you're part of UNETA, you work as part of the regulatory structures, but you're also independent. Mm -hmm. So that gives you a certain distance and an independence that a lot of the other EU28 do not have. You can go to the beat of your own drummer, as it were. Does it give you more flexibility to try um, and experiment? Yeah, because, um, I mean, we have always been quite good friends with uh, our UK <laughs> colleagues. And uh, in, in unfortunately, in, in a couple of weeks, they are no longer members of the European Union either. Uh, yeah, well, if maybe they'll be go. joining Norway, who knows? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it doesn't look so uh, um, such a bad solution for them by now, I think. But um, uh, unfortunately, I guess that option also is not on the table anymore. Yeah. But um, it means for us, the world is a bit bigger than Europe. We formed our coalition, the Finnosa project with Finland, Norway and Sweden, where we decided that we wanted to look at health economic model assessment only. The decisions are national, the input is national, we only look at the structure. That's one solution because we fit methodologically. The UK fits methodologically, Canada fits methodologically. If Australia wanted to join us, we wouldn't say no. Yeah. Because we don't see Finosa necessarily as a European project. We see it as a methodological grouping. Beneluxair has a different idea. They wanted price negotiations. They wanted volume. Right. And they want to share other types of information with each other, uh, which is good because it's already, uh, what, five, six countries that can be negotiated as one target, no longer each individually. And the Valletta Initiative is the Mediterranean countries that are also trying to find some way to, to collaborate. If at the end of the process of UNETA, uh, the industry only has to deal with five or six initiatives to discuss with, then we would already be a long way better off than the 50 plus we have right now, which makes it very, very difficult for the industry to discuss because lots of the differences they point out between the agencies is quite usually historical. We've always done it like this. Well, yes, maybe we could do it differently, but nobody ever asked. That's where the communication thing is coming in. You have to sit together in the room, do f common assessments, then you learn from each other. You align even more, 
and you get a more transparent expectation picture to the company. All things eventually revert to the mean, and the more countries you have that are more diverse and have different economies, the mean is going to be different from maybe an optimal mean for Norway. So wouldn't it make sense that you would slice and dice this for countries that have like, you know, essential like opinions, like needs, mm-hmm. like economies? Wouldn't it be logical that you would try to force uh, these? Together? Yeah, it should be logical, but um, uh, there are obviously forces that are against it. I'm not quite <laughs> sure that the industry likes the idea that, um, you know, a small, small country like Norway with its 5.2 million inhabitants suddenly falls into a bigger group which has more negotiation power, obviously. Yeah. But Norway is also very, one of the highest GDP per capita countries on the planet. Yeah, sure. So I always say we are the golden goose. <laughs> uh, you, you, you come and uh, the moment we sit down at the table and start negotiating, then you are playing the, but you have so few patience card. Yeah. And that puts us down into category Albania kind of thing. <laughs> but when it comes to what we could pay, obviously we are among the top. So um, we can we can benefit from uh, collaborating with others. And when it comes to pricing, surprisingly, is it's a bit paradox. We do have a coalition with Denmark. Yeah. Because Denmark cannot join us methodologically for the other parts. So the Finosa they couldn't join. But our government decided that for price negotiations they would go uh, and team up with Denmark. And these kind of things are ongoing everywhere. And I think that there is going to be a defragmentation, I would say. It will never be just one picture. We will never have something like the EMA uh, for HDAs because there are a couple of the big ones that have very clearly stated that this is not never, ever going to happen, which is, a, which is a pity, but that's... It's an issue of sovereignty. Yeah, and there are limits to when it comes to the obvious differences. I mean, science is science, you know. The knowledge uh, across Europe is the same. Uh, we can disagree slightly, but HDA is something different. It has something to do with how much money do you have for your healthcare system or how much money do you want to assign to your healthcare yeah. system. Those numbers are very, very different across Europe. Of course. And that makes it more difficult to come to joint decisions. But some parts can be done jointly. Now, we're here at DIA in Vienna. It's a beautiful sunny day, which is pleasant, given mm-hmm. the fact it's been cloudy in Brussels for basically six months now. You and I are here on a panel discussing orphan drugs and the orphan legislation, which is currently under review. Sales of orphan drugs are increasing on average by 11.3%. They're anticipated to be over 20% of all pharmaceutical sales by 2025. If we look at why the orphan drug legislation was put in place in Europe in 2000, it's because you know the 30 million people with an orphan drug condition in Europe, we're not getting access to drugs for their condition. So in one way, you can look at this and say, this is a huge success. I mean, look at all the things that are coming online. I mean, the the CAR-T drugs we're talking about, those are an orphan drug. Vertex now, we have a drug that treats a subpopulation of cystic fibrosis, another orphan condition. Okay. Mm -hmm. On the other side of the coin, there's a lot of pushback, particularly at the member state level against the orphan drug regulation saying it needs to be redrafted. Where do you fall on this, Anya? I think that when we put the orphan legislation in place, we had a certain idea. And the idea was that um, almost all development for orphan drugs was either academic or small, medium enterprises. There were very few big companies that are actually going into that direction. At that time, uh, they were still focusing on the big indications. And it didn't seem very attractive. So you had to put out some incentives for small companies so that they could compete if they ever reached the market. 
Uh, the point now is that just as the criticism about the acceptance of single-arm trials, for example, that was going on and everybody was saying, well, EMA changed its, uh, its regulations somehow or its expectations. No, it's what you get in. Submissions are in these type of indications where you could argue that a single-arm trial might have been good enough. Not that I agree, but that was the way of thinking. And the same is with your offense. We see more offense because... The big indications are all covered. If, if you've come to third, fourth line, by definition, you almost cross the orphan border. But <laughs> I like that idea, the orphan border. I like that. But isn't there also just a, a scientific practicality as we're slicing and dicing these indications? You, you know, they're talking about Alzheimer's now being a segmented population, and we'll find responders in subpopulations of Alzheimer's. I mean, if we're getting there, if that's where the science is mm -hmm. leading us, isn't it an inevitability that we will end up with more and more orphans? Yes, we will inevitably uh, go because the, the ultimate orphan uh, designation is the personalized... N, N equals one. Exactly, it's a personalized medicine. <laughs> uh, which will cause lots of problems for the HDAs, by the way, when we come down that road. Well, everything's a one-arm trial, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and the confidence intervals are quite... Quite uh, wide. Yep, and, and meaningless, <laughs> I would say. But the, uh, the idea be behind the orphan is that I, I just think that there isn't anything out there that isn't orphan anymore. In, within a short time, we probably just only see anything that's orphan. And, and it's not really orphan in the sense as we originally intended it, because often was to be a, really a disease that is so rare globally that no one can run a, a proper trial. But now often is used in, in a very different way. It says, well, if I just put characteristics on enough characteristics on different patients and I can divide them all. That wasn't really what the orphan legislation was meant for. Eric Tamboiser, who was one of the founding people in Europe for Genzyme, senior vice president on the board of directors, very active and one of the first people who did a lot of work on orphan drugs in Europe. Now, Eric always said that eventually everything will be an orphan or a personalized medicine. I mean, this was always his position. In many ways, this is bearing out to be true. Yeah. Is this Machiavellian cunning on the part of industry or is it just simply the way the science is going or no. do you see it as a combination of both? I, don't uh, know. I, I think it's a consequence uh, mm. of how science is going yeah. but I see when I'm really cynical I see that the big companies now hopping on the orphans because not only is it the only area where you probably still can do something, but also because they have this strange idea that you can put any price tag on it. If it's only small enough, they seem to think they can play a chicken game. I'll dare you to say no. Uh, and, and we have seen that a couple of times now. And I think that they did realize that there is a limit where the dare goes too far and, well, we're and the seeing, no comes. Well, we're seeing this with the CAR-T therapies as well, where the idea of the market estimates were that they were going to have, you know, four or five hundred million dollars in sales a year, and they're not even coming close to that. So there is a limit to, I mean, just because you have market exclusivity and essentially a monopoly position does not give you unlimited license to print money. I think this is a fallacy. Yeah, exactly. In essence, the orphans are driving, they accelerate what we already know. The system is at the at the limit. We are going to reach a breaking point. People have to understand their population is increasing, age is increasing. We have an awful lot of not so expensive good drugs, which we have to maintain. And just maintaining them means that we have to increase our budget every year. If you on top, just for a couple of cherries, want to add another 25% of our healthcare budget in Norway, then you are going to 
get some no's. But what if you're one of the people, I'm going to play devil's advocate now, mm-hmm. um, but what if you're one of these people who, can, who has cystic fibrosis, who gets this Vertex drug and is cured? Yeah, that's a half billion dollar, 500 million, 400 million dollar treatment or whatever. That's the point, cure. Yeah. Um, a, it's very difficult for HDAs to, to handle cure because our systems are not, no, really not designed made for, for cure. Yeah, for cure. <laughs> but cure is, is obviously a very difficult endpoint to determine. You have to have good agreement on when you call a patient cured. Yeah. And if you have a patient that is cured uh, and you have evidence that your patients are all cured, then you will get the money for that. There is no question about it. The problem is that everybody comes and gives you one-year data and claims cure for 100 years. <laughs> and, and that is where, where we say, well, you know, we, we are dependent on the models the companies are bringing. The CAR-Ts are an extremely good example where we had lots of discussions. Designs of these studies were flawed uh, to such an extent that not only can you not compare them with each other, but you cannot even compare them fairly with their own controls, even though they had controls. A very unfortunate situation which should never have happened. But those trials did not go the, the way of the scientific advice uh, to the same extent as some other drugs. And maybe it would have been useful to have a more extensive discussion on these trial designs at, a, at an earlier time point, And some of the problems could have been avoided. But when it comes to even discussing, and I totally disagree with my colleague who <laughs> is in the cut, who was um, always saying, well, you know, you give this to the patients, they are cured. They'll never do anything else afterwards. And I was always the advocate said, no, if you have a patient that wasn't transplant eligible and you make them transplant eligible, you will give them the transplant because you know exactly how a transplant works and how much you get out of it. And you don't know that about the CAR-Ts. So this is a risk assessment of the physician. And I think in reality, it has proven that physicians think differently than the designers of the trials that assumed there would be no transplant afterwards. That's correct. Um, and again, our, our paper isn't published yet, so I have to be very careful with what I say now. But no, but it's, it's more, yeah, you don't have to refer to the paper. You have to... Uh, it's it's a uh, it's a feedback we get. Also at you the sure? CAR T, uh, we, we heard that people said, "Well, no, 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 y- you go to a transplant because this is a is a proven treatment." And that's where I say, I mean, it's been around for a lo- very long time. We know exactly how it works, and that's why you always fall back on the drug or the treatment you are most familiar with, and you know all the risks and all the the little ins and outs. And a new treatment first has to prove. So you you have to first show me all these patients that, you know, after 10 years. They're still, still walking around. Yeah, still yeah. walking around, still haven't. Yes, there is maybe one or two of them. But, you know, as a statistician, one or two is nothing in my world. I, I do need more of these cases. And that takes time. And unfortunately for some drugs... They don't have time. Yeah, they don't have the time and they don't produce this kind of data. And then claiming cure is is something that is really built on faith. And we, uh, neither statisticians nor HDA people, are very fond of faith decisions. We, well, we like data. William Denning, one of my heroes, and God we trust all others bring data. data exactly. <laughs> so just quickly wrapping up here, if you could make one change right now, given everything we're talking about, about the, you know, okay, yes, you want the RCT, but yes, you want more than one year validation, but you can't use extrapolation, blah, blah, blah. What, what would you like to see happen? If you had a magic wand, what would you like to do to fix this? I don't even need a magic wand. I just would like to see more companies embracing the idea that early communication with the other stakeholders really makes a difference. So I want a pull through 
instead of a push through system. I want them to understand that we can tell them which indications would be something we want to pay money for and that the tense me too that in really isn't something we're waiting for. And I know they, they want to have a portfolio with some safe bets in it, but they have to understand that safe bets are not something that the system really needs because it clocks the whole system because we have to pay for, for all of them. And if I have to choose between, you know, headache and, and a stomach ache uh, <laughs> versus I could have a new therapy in the system if we just had accepted that everybody has to live with a stomach ache. This kind of thinking is not in the industry. They, they obviously have to optimize their own product. They want to make money for their company. But we as HDAs have the entire system. So if I get choices that I don't really want but cost money, I would prefer we would get away from that. And companies would come and say, well, you know, we have lots of stuff that we didn't develop, for example, because maybe we, we thought it was too risky in that indication. But if I can tell them, you know, but in this indication, we would really pay you good money if you could prove this and this with your drug, then we would see completely different studies. We would finally see these studies where the new ICH addendum uh, S-demand framework is coming in, where you discuss with them what is the true value of your drug, not what have all the other trials shown before you. But if your drug can do something special and fills the gap or really does make a difference in an area that usually isn't considered uh, so easy to measure, like quality of life, for example, then design different studies because the regulators would be flexible enough to understand it. But in the estimate framework, you can uh, have estimates for regulators and estimates for HDAs and estimates for clinicians, for example. You can define different analysis that would really uh, pinpoint what the true value is of your drug. And these communications, these conversations have to go on more often than anything else. And the only other thing, if I had a want... Yes, I would you go do right now. Thank you. And, <laughs> and then I would wave my wand and go back in time and start Unetta over again. <laughs> and this time I would make it true. European. I would not start with a club of good friends that have an academic interest, but I would start with what we know right now, what the goal should have been of this initiative and have made it really European. I would have forced everybody to participate in these discussions and in the end come with a system that works best for most. And if some of the big ones don't see any benefit in it, they don't have to be part of it. They can opt out. Had we started this way, I think we would have had a much larger support and collaboration between, you know, the small ones. Right. And then maybe we would have ended up in a different position than we are in right now. Anya, that's fantastic. Thank you very much. Thanks, Wayne.